When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. April 3rd, 2022. I'm Anthony Davis and welcome to the eighth episode in this series from Midas Touch and five-minute news called The Weekend Show. Uh, Download the show as audio in addition to my daily five-minute news podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is executive editor of Rewire News Group and co-host of the podcast Boom Lawyered, Jessica Peeklow. Hi, Jessica. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Weekend Show. Um, we've got lots to talk about. I, I don't know if you found this for me this week. I'm, I'm literally, as you see, I've already pulled all my hair out, but I've literally <laughs> pulled my hair out because it's as if, I mean, the war in Ukraine weighs very heavily on my, on my chest and I'm sure it's the same for you. You know, we, yes. well, there's, I feel very helpless and there's very little we can do on this side of the world other than pray, I guess. But I also feel like um, a combination of things, the knock-on effect of that with gas prices over here and how Biden's choosing to handle that. Uh, We've got the January 6th panel who are just pushing and pushing all the time. And I think Jared Kushner sat and had a good chat with them this week. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. And so we're going to look at some of these stories, all of which we've covered in five-minute news across the week. And uh, and then the other one is, of course, Arizona. The governor there has signed bills limiting transgender rights and abortion in, in that state as well, following on from Florida and, and Texas. So these are things that we're going to discuss, um, sharing your expertise. Let's look at uh, Merrick Garland to start with. Mm-hmm. This is because of the lawmakers investigating the, uh, the insurrection Uh, are increasingly going public with critical statements, court filings and more to deliver a blunt message to the Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice. Of course, they can't suggest any crimes. Well, they can they can suggest that crimes may have been committed, but they can't prosecute. They have to refer it to the Justice Department. So. What do you think of this guy, Merrick Garland? Because, you know, he's 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 made some very moving speeches. He's obviously very emotionally involved in all of these cases, isn't he? And I respect him for that. But is he going to come through here? I mean, is he going to allow American democracy to, to survive going forward? Or is he going to just going to drop the ball? What are your thoughts? 
Wow, we're opening up with a light question, I see. Um, I apologize. <laughs> no, but truly, first of all, thank you for having me on. But that's really, I think, the question at the heart of the January 6th commission and um, a lot of people's minds moving forward right now. So first, some context. Uh, the Department of Justice has been moving forward on many of these prosecutions. And as a former litigator, these things take time. I mean, you know, for example, even in uh, some of the document requests around uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani, for example, Giuliani's lawyers have been fighting those requests from the Department of Justice for months and months and months and months. And we're just getting rulings on those now. That's not to give any excuses or to sort of, you know, um, say that the Department of Justice can't be doing more because I do think they could be doing more. In particular, Merrick Garland has a bully pulpit. So even if the Department of Justice is moving behind the scenes in litigation on these cases as they are, the fact that the Department of Justice, that the that our attorney general has not been more vocally out there, I think is also not helping. Right. Because it's as if it's sending a message that this is not important or they don't really care that much. It's business as usual. And none of those things can be true if the democracy is to survive. The Department of Justice must care about these uh, investigating these cases, referring them for prosecution, you know, but it does take time. Um, the Watergate prosecutions, those took three years from that, like, you know, little gap. We were talking about a, you know, 17 minute gap in the Watergate tapes or even less. And we've got a seven hour gap now that we're learning about um, in presidential communications on January 6th. So part of that is uh, the cliche that the wheels of justice move slowly. But that said, I do think that, you know, particularly um, the administration and, and um, the, Merrick Garland in particular, as the attorney not actually doing the prosecuting here, right, those are his teams of attorneys behind him, he could be more vocal on this because it then falls to Democratic members of Congress. And that also is in a great look moving forward. What happens to democracy in the meantime? Because, you know, this is my greatest fear. And I've been watching a, a new documentary has just dropped on PBS on a, a frontline documentary. And as you know, they do great journalism. Mm -hmm. And they this really is a, do. you know, long form documentary. And, and this thing, I, well, I haven't finished it, actually. I'm kind of halfway through it. But it's called Plot to Overturn the Election. Uh, yeah. And it's a, it's a frontline and ProPublica. Um, uh, they've teamed up to examine how lies about election fraud have made their way to the center of American politics and how mm -hmm. a handful of people have, have had an outsized impact on the current crisis of, of democratic legitimacy in the United States. And, and I, I fear that in Merrick Garland's silence... Even people on the left are starting to say, well, yeah, you know, democracy in America is flawed. You know, the election wasn't fair. That's is that not the problem of delaying the response? And I appreciate the investigation takes a long mm -hmm. time, but so much damage in my mind is being yeah. done in the meantime. Absolutely. And I think that's the, the the danger of the silence, right? Even if there were, imagine if we had periodic democracy updates from the Department of Justice in terms of how it was handling this response, just a periodic press briefing about, you know, statuses on some of these cases, all of which is public information. But it's just difficult for journalists and, and folks to dig up, right? Like that's not necessarily easy, um, organic information to come by. So those are opportunities, in my opinion, 
opinion that are low-hanging fruit for the Department of Justice that are missed. And to your point, what it's doing is it's creating a vacuum of opportunity, particularly on the road, on the right. You know, um, we are seeing them increasingly embrace big lie as platform. I mean, we have this going into the mid midterm election, so much so that, you know, we have the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice, Jenny Thomas, at the heart of this. Her husband is ruling on January 6th cases. And yet at the same time, the response from the left seems to be, well, we hope he does the right thing moving forward as though, you know, that's going to happen. So one of the other dangers, I think, is complacency among the left by Merrick Garland continuing to not really use that pulpit. What does it do? It just creates an opportunity for folks with bad intentions to control the narrative and also, you know, operate behind the scenes. One of the concerns that I have that I know other folks share is that January 6th was a testing ground. Some of what we're seeing, particularly, in my opinion, on these election lawsuits related to the voting machines and whatnot, we have seen bad faith actors on the right, regardless of the issue, use trial balloons right, to do these things to see how far they can get away with, how much they can get away with. I am very concerned about what will happen with election integrity going beyond the midterm elections since we seem to have this vacuum. Even if things are happening, it's not in the constant communication in, you know, in political media especially. And so I, I share a lot of those concerns right now. Is this also a failure of Democrats? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we, we the right are going to do their thing, you know, and, and, yes. and, and the machine behind this this coup, just based on what I've seen of half of this frontline documentary, there, there were dozens and dozens of mm -hmm. people at a very high level, you know, Michael Flynn, yep. who who were responsible for plotting a significant plot to overturn the the election this is what you know clearly all led by trump but there are there were there had to be people who were making this happen and so the more we discover about it and the more mm -hmm. that the january 6 commission release information each week as they do which is endlessly fascinating but the reality is that these people that overturned or they said they succeeded in overturning the election mm -hmm. for a period of hours because of mm -hmm. course they delayed the certification and to me, that's a successful coup. Exactly. You, you, they, those people haven't like retired. You know, those people are, if anything, they are more energized than ever. Mm -hmm. So is it a failure of the Democrats and of arguably the president? Mm -hmm. Because he's been very silent on this to, to make us aware that American democracy is being protected through due process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's I think that's completely fair to lay part of this at the Democratic leadership's feet. Um, they have an obligation to all of us, regardless of who how they vote in their party. You know, I mean, if our Democratic ideals mean anything, this is the moment to be speaking to them and to be calling members of their coalition in, whether they're Democratic or Republican, because, yes, this is a failure of Democrats in terms of continuously pushing the issue. It's also a failure of Democrats by not continuously putting this issue at the feet of their colleagues. All of the talk of bipartisanship should mean nothing when these are folks who were willing to ignore the will of the people, who were willing 
willing to stand by as a scaffolding was being erected for the former vice president and then to proceed as business as normal. The fact that Democrats are even proceeding as business as normal, I think, is sending the wrong signal from the gates. Uh, not a solitary Republican voted for voting rights, the the, the, Roti, the Voting Rights Act, right? The, the John right. Lewis Act and the, and the other, you know, not a single Republican. Now, should that not trigger, even in conservative voters, some feelings that actually the people who represent them do not have their best interests at heart? I mean, wh why is this not setting off more alarm bells for the greater population? That's an excellent question. I wish I knew because I have been freaking out about this for a <laughs> good too. long yeah. while now. Yeah. Um, you know, it should not be accepted that the Republican Party stands for opposition to voting writ large. Why that is accepted as okay and politics as normal, even when you see the framing around the failure of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, it was a loss for Democrats. No, that's a loss for democracy. Yeah. It's not a loss for Democrats. And so there's a you know political media failure there too in just a willingness to accept the fight for democracy as a partisan fight. This should not be a partisan fight. We should have conservatives on the side of democracy pushing out the folks who want to promote the big lie, who are looking to continue and upend voting rights and, you know, fair, free and fair elections. You know, we have stood by in this country and been proud of the, you know, like nonviolent transfer of power that historically we have had. And I don't think we can say that anymore. And conservatives for all of their grandstanding around the flag, around American values, like this should be their moment more than even Democrats. And yet here we are. The battle for democracy is apparently a partisan issue. But the Democrats screwed up, didn't they? Because they stacked those bills with too many things. There were too many aspects to those bills in the same way that social care and climate bill was just stacked and packed and it seems the only way to get Republicans to join in is to have like one hot button issue and just to, to do it, you know, an infrastructure mm -hmm. clearly was the only one that they were prepared to give, despite, you know, Joe yeah. Manchin's negotiations, bringing it down from trillions to, to next to nothing. Friends like these. So, so is this, I mean, we have to look to blame somebody. And, I, and this coincides with Nancy Pelosi announcing that she's going to run again, continue. And she is responsible for packaging a lot of this policy, isn't she? Mm -hmm. I mean, she's the one who negotiates behind the scenes. She's the one that, that, that puts the bills together with her colleagues. And yet, and you know, and she's what, she's like 146 now, right? So, I mean, she's obviously got a lot of experience and I, I'm not criticizing her for that. But if it's the case that she has not been able to get any of these bills passed, why does she not have the radar to recognize that maybe she's not the right person for the job and that actually somebody else who can has a different perspective? Because arguably Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden are institutionalized. These people have grown up in the Senate. You know, they've matured in the Senate. And, and in Congress. And so you end up with people who cannot see the bigger picture. So who do we blame for the fact that voting rights didn't pass 
it's you can't just blame republicans for not voting for it you know, uh, I think we have a really interesting moment in um, our political establishment, too. And I saw this particularly the Judge Jackson confirmation hearings are fresh in my mind because I recently was just, you know, up to my eyeballs covering them. And what we saw from the Democratic leadership in the Judiciary Committee, I think, is a is a split among the cohorts generationally. And I think what you are asking really gets to that, because I would I would put that failure at Chuck Schumer's uh, feet as well. Right. Like right. really an inability of of senior Democratic leadership to a read the room and then b collect the votes, which was, you know, Schumer's job in the Senate to, to you know, work with what happened in the House. And so we are seeing a, a newer generation of Democratic leadership in both the House and, and the Senate come up and understand that this is a different political moment, that this is not the same political moment that Joe Biden, that Chuck Schumer, that Nancy Pelosi, the Dianne Feinsteins, you know, that these The dinosaurs, do, effectively, the, the, the folks, dinosaurs. The, the Democratic gerontocracy of yeah. leadership. And I think yeah. it's okay to call it a gerontocracy of leadership. And folks do need to be able to know Know when to step aside and let new leadership in, new vision in. And this is the political moment to do so. Unfortunately, we're not seeing that in, you know, that kind of self-reflection, that kind of um, understanding that it is more than a person's political career. But truly, this is something I think that is generational across the Democratic Party right now, um, that it, the fight for the future of that leadership um, really is also about the fight for so many of these progressive policy issues that matter to us the most. You need both teams to play by the rules, don't you, in order, well, to, yeah. in order to get anything through. You know, it's very, in, even in a game of, of, of soccer, you know, mm -hmm. there, there are basic rules. Right. And that's how you get to the end of the game. Otherwise, the game would never end. This game is never going to end because Joe Biden seems to think that he can make bipartisanship, you know, the buzzword of the of the new millennia. And it's not it's not happening. Republicans are done with the rules. Yeah. They are done with the rules of democracy. They are done with the rules of voting. They are done with the rules of of committees. And and they, they don't show up for stuff. They just don't bother. Yeah. So so. What's it going to take to make the old guard realize that, that they're just playing a different game to everybody else? I wish I knew because I mean to continue your analogy, right? This is like the, the Republicans were offsides for an entire half running up the score. And then the Democrats come in and are trying to level the game at that moment, right? And impossible to be done. You can't be done. It's good to hear some initial stabs at conversations around democracy reform, things like court reform. You know, that's one of the areas that is a huge of huge importance to me. I've been covering the federal judiciary as a journalist now for over a decade for talking about the conservatives plan really politically to capture the judiciary as part of a policy agenda for them and what that meant for this country. And Folks are now starting to talk about that. I hope the January 6th commission and this Ginny Thomas business brings that conversation more to bear. But again, to your point, the leadership in the Democratic Party, the old guard leadership, the Biden administration has said that these are all nice conversations to have, but it's not really interested in doing anything radical 
we are in a moment that calls for radical action. And the younger generation understands that of leadership. And I, I, they are just going to, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Yeah, absent, I, I was, I, absent the voters doing something in those really blue districts, right? Like absent Diane Feinstein's constituents coming to her and saying, please, Senator Feinstein, don't run again. Absent, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi's constituents coming to her and say, please, Representative Pelosi, there is somebody new who can have, who should have this seat. Like, I don't really know because there is no incentive absent personal goodwill for these folks to step aside. I've been working with a producer in the last week, um, Sarah, a young woman, really very inspiring. And I was talking to her about, you know, Joe Biden. And she said she wished that Joe Biden could be as radical as Donald Trump was on the right, but with progressive ideas. That kind of, and, and I thought it was beautiful because yeah. it's, it's so simple. This notion that, that, that to be radical is not to be bad. Yeah. And of course, we paint and, and the, the, the Republicans have painted anybody who comes close to what they describe as radical, AOC, you know, Ilan mm -hmm. uh, Omar, any of these people that, that don't fit their, their perfect narrative. They, they just, even Bernie Sanders, they describe mm -hmm. as radical. Yeah, I'm from England and, and none of this stuff is considered radical. You know, no. the Green New Deal is standard. It's just normal. This is what you do. You, right. And, and so how do we, I mean, is it just that, that Biden is the wrong guy? Because, you know, he said that he wants to run again. He only said mm -hmm. that a week or so ago. And with, I guess, with Kamala Harris as his running mate. But the reality is that if Biden runs, and I, and I hate to say this out loud because I fear that it may come true, and I'm looking for some wood to touch, but I don't think I have any here. But I, I, I think that if he ran against Donald Trump, Donald Trump will win and Donald Trump will become the president. And whether that's through, you know, fraud or whether it's through, through cheating or whatever, it's irrelevant. The yeah. point is that Trump will come back. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I, I don't really, it's not even a question. I mean, it's, I'm just like, I, I just think it's important to remind ourselves yeah. that Trump is not history. No. And, and, the, and the, the, this um, benign activity of the current president it is not enough to stop an autocrat from, from cheating, right? No, it's not. And this is, you know, sort of getting back to the start of our conversation in terms of Democratic failures here. We know that Trump will come back in, and run again. And even if he doesn't, we know that those affiliated with him will be surrounding themselves with whoever is the Trump stand in. This is not going away. This is the conservative movement in the United States that to be very clear, you know, all of the religious evangelical leaders were recently at Mar-a-Lago huddling together for the, the run. If folks think that the, you know, conservative political establishment isn't still fully with the former president of the United States, they are mistaken. They are. Um, I, I just don't think Democrats. And honestly, I, I don't think a lot of, of folks who consider themselves pretty savvy political consumers take the Trump threat in 2024 seriously and definitely not seriously enough. Um, they want power. That's what this is about. This isn't about governing principles. 
This isn't about instituting a specific set of policy ideals. We're no longer having conversations in any good faith way with conservatives about an opposition to like what tax policy, foreign policy, like, you know, I mean, even foreign policy is all wrapped up in this sense of just grabbing power and staying in power. And Democrats don't say that about the opposition, but they have to because that's what it Th- is. This has been reported recently, hasn't it? This The yeah. Democrats' inability to actually to critique the, the, the other side, to say yeah. what we're all seeing. Now, wh- where does that stem from? Because I haven't lived in the US for long enough to kind of understand where what the, what the culture is behind this. I mean, what is the reason that they're so stuck on the kind of respectful protocol of Congress? Is that, is that what it is? Some of it, I do think, is um, the sense of the esteemed traditions of democracy that come, you know, and, and folks buy into that. Um, there is absolutely the reality that the folks who have spent their lifetime in Congress don't necessarily see the world the way that those of us who live in it do. I mean, that's that's just the truth. And I also think that there is, quite frankly, a racial layer to this, too. You know, the United States Congress is exceptionally white and has been historically and White culture in this country does not like to make a scene or be rude. And I think that that is in part an extension of it. I frankly would love to see a brawl like some of the parliament stuff, you know, actually get into it. I'm not I'm saying that kind of kidding, but also really kind of not, because at least there there is the power of conviction. Right. Um, For good or for bad, it's messy. And, you know, is it? Great. Well, it's I referred to as debate, isn't it? You know, we we, yeah. we debate in in Parliament on a, on a Wednesday at noon in Parliament in England. We we you know that they have Prime Minister's questions and they go back and yeah. forth. But but Congress doesn't have that. The Senate doesn't have that. They make a series of statements. They yeah. don't address each other directly. There is no interplay. There is no, no volley, and therefore there is no debate. And yet they use the word debate. Oh, we'll debate this. We'll debate that. Yeah. But there, I have never seen a debate. I'm no. still waiting for one. So. I mean, is that the fundamental problem that, that it's all theater? You know, it's it's it, you know, it is a theatrical display. It's a little mm-hmm. bit like, you know, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's a friend of mine who's also a Trump supporter, my only Trump supporter who's a friend. And I find him completely fascinating. You know, I'm like mining him for information of like, what on earth is he thinking? And uh, he just says, oh, well, you know, the news is entertainment. And he he said that genuinely. Oh, well, mm-hmm. the news is entertainment. So how do we dilute or marginalize what is fundamentally so important? I mean, is that really the bigger picture conversation that that politics is just show business mm. for ugly people, it, and <laughs> the, and that and that we are you know, and that democracy, the fall the fall of democracy in the West, it doesn't really matter because it's you know it's it's the Truman Show. It's you know that there's there's a director and there's there's everyone's an actor. I mean. Is that in the back of Americans' minds that actually none of this matters because life, American exceptionalism means life will go on? So I, you know, I mean, uh, I think there is some truth to that. You know, Mark Twain certainly before the Truman Show would have said that that was um, the direction of American politics from its inception. Even you know, Molly Ivins. I mean, we have such a great history of political satirists in in this country that I think that there has to be some truth to the idea that politics is entertainment and and theater too. I do push back against that a little bit because. 
because it does matter ultimately. You know, as a woman who is witnessing the rapid rollback of reproductive rights in this country in a space that as a journalist I've covered for over a decade, and the backlash here is something that while I was anticipating it is even quicker than I was anticipating, it, it does matter. These, these fights do matter because what ultimately is the outcome impacts me and, and my community differently than it does other communities also. So, you know, um, the theater is part of it, absolutely. But real people's lives are at on the line in these policy debates. And so if we cave too much into that nihilism, I think, if we cave too much into the idea that it's theater, then we really have crossed the Rubicon and why bother on anything? Because then, you know, voting rights definitely won't get protected. You know, trans kids will definitely stay in the in the crosshairs of conservatives. All of those things will absolutely never change that way. Let, let's stay on that subject because uh, Arizona's Republican governor signed a series of bills on Wednesday this week targeting abortion mm -hmm. and transgender rights, mm -hmm. uh, joining a growing list of GOP states that are pursuing a, a conservative social agenda. And, you know, this is outlawing abortion after 15 weeks if the U.S. Supreme Court allows it, uh, prohibit gender confirmation surgery for minors. It'll ban transgender girls from playing on girls sports teams mm -hmm. and and. And we're seeing this now in, in multiple states and it's only going to be it's only going to be extended, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's always a victim here, isn't there? You know, the, the, the victim is not the white male, the white straight, you know, cis male that is making these rules, mm -hmm. often without any kind of outreach, without any referenda. There, you know, there's not much. I mean, I, I would I would suggest if you were to survey the people, even in these Republican states, they don't want to ban abortion because half of them need to use those services. Mm -hmm. So do you let's just talk about the fact that these um, policies are not victimless, are they? And I know that you yeah. have a, a lot of expertise, especially when it comes to abortion rights. So, I mean, what direction is 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 the country going in and, and what how would the rest of the world view America if if, you know, Roe v. Wade is overturned? I mean, this is this is absolutely the direction that we're headed. And, um, you know, what does it mean to overturn Roe versus Wade? Um, it means a lot more than the end of legal abortion in some states and potentially across the country. You know, one of the things that I really hope folks understand about the anti-abortion movement in this country is that they are not settled on half measures. They don't view something like a ban at 15 weeks as a win. They own they don't view abortion being outlawed in one state, but accessible in another state as a win. Those aren't wins to them. There are no half measures. They will not be satisfied until abortion is recriminalized across the country. But it's even further than that. The laws that uphold the right to abortion uphold a whole host of privacy rights in this country that folks who may have personal opposition to abortion don't have the same personal opposition to, for example. Birth control is very clearly on the line here. We have Senator Marsha Blackburn in Kentucky or in Tennessee saying that Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court decision that legalized the use of contraception among married people, was wrongly decided. 
We have all three attorney general candidates uh, in the state of Michigan for uh, the Republican side saying the same thing as well. We have a concerted effort to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage in this country. They're all tied up in the same thing. Um, and, and so there are no victimless or victimless, um, you know, people in these legislation. You're absolutely right. Who do they impact the most? Well, everybody at some point needs access to reproductive health care, whether or not it's a planned pregnancy or an unplanned pregnancy. We don't know how these things go. We want health care to be available for everybody, you know, um, Gender affirming care is not something that is exclusive to trans kids either. Every single time we have people who take hormone replacement therapy for entering menopause, for example, that's gender affirming care. You get breast augmentation, that's gender affirming care. We've just politicized and weaponized it in a new and very dangerous way. But they all have a common theme, and that is a regression in social circles, right? What is this about? It is about keeping certain people out of civic society, keeping certain people out of civil society, and maintaining power of others within. So what do attacks on reproductive health care do? They make it harder for women to stay consistently in the workplace, for example. You know, what do these attacks on trans, trans kids or like the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, what does that do? Not only does it keep kids in closet, but it creates an avenue for school districts to fire teachers, right? So the dots are connected on this in ways that go beyond just, you know, conservative politicians not liking abortion. They understand that this is a pathway to grab other rights. <clears throat> Excuse me. The irony is that the Republican Party claimed to be the party of freedom. <laughs> they claim to be the party of liberty. Mm -hmm. and of, of, of choice, right? Yeah. You know, you can't tell me what to do. If I want to do this, if I want to have uh, a gun, if I want to, you know, mm -hmm. anything. And yet this desire to impose such strict rules mm -hmm. upon minority groups in this way goes so against everything that they've been chanting for decades. So is it the fact that fundamentally the Republican Party are white, straight people and everybody else has to be marginalized, ignored? Is that fundamentally what this comes back to? It's, it's, it's always racism. It's, al it's always creating that segregation and that this white supremacy fundamentally is at the soul and the heart of any decision. I mean, I looked at that picture of, that was published of Lindsey Graham sitting on the bench next to Katanji Brown Jackson, like they were supposed to be having an informal conversation. I've never seen a man so uncomfortable to be sitting next to a black, intelligent oh, yeah. black woman. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it was absolutely. just like the, the body language. I was like, you are so uncomfortable right now. This is what this is all about. I mean, we, we, yeah. have, to, we have to really... Tell it like it is, right? It's yeah. it's it's I white mean, it's, supremacy. It's 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 white Christian nationalism. That yeah. is what the conservative movement in this country stands for. And the white, the Christian, and the nationalism all need to be stitched together because they do, they they belong in the same breath. Um, you know, it is not as though all white folks, even in this space, would be considered equal, right? I mean. You know, it is very it is certain religious texts. You know, you mentioned Arizona. There's a bill in the Arizona Senate right now that would make it OK 
for governmental agencies in the state to refuse to place kids in uh, adoptive and foster care families based on religious objections to marriage equality, to same-sex marriage. The Supreme Court already decided that that you shouldn't be able to do that. Sam Alito wrote a blistering dissent last term that was like, no, we actually really want to be able to do that. Conservative lawmakers read that dissent and said, we think the winds are changing. We think that we will be able to take this dissent and turn this into law. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this, the states where they're trying to do this, they're, those agencies are denying foster care placements in Jewish households. So don't think that this is not about that sort of very specific Christianity because it is. Do you think any of the, the the like the likes of you know Ron Death Santis and whoever else you know do you, do you think that these people realize that the rest of the world does not operate like this and that you know if they if had they have spent any time in Europe they would have realized that that literally these are not hot button issues these are fringe far right extremist yeah. views and yet for some reason being in this protected continent means that you know you can travel the continent to get any climate to get any flavor to get any cuisine you don't really need to go to the other side of the world to have a vacation and so and only 50 percent of americans have a passport as far as yeah. i'm aware i mean the downside to that isolationist view is that you can think you're being progressive by <laughs> you know appeasing and appealing to your voters and banning abortion but the rest of the world has moved on. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen if this is the case, that all of these things that we are predicting and, and are in fear of, that, that, that they happen and Trump wins the election and America is rewound by, you know, 50, 60 years in women's rights and civil rights? What, what does that do to America on the world stage? I mean, I'm frankly surprised we survived with the standing that we did through a first Trump administration, given the sheer power grabs, the just blatant, like, thumbing our nose at all international standards and actively trying to create and sow chaos across the globe. I mean, let's be honest, the Trump administration was absolutely doing that. Um, I I mean, it, it's... It's horrible. You know, you you were asking about DeSantis and what do they think the rest of the world? I honestly don't think they care. I come from a conservative pocket. I was born and raised in a conservative pocket of this country in, in Nebraska. And folks don't travel. They're suspicious of outsiders still in 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 today. I'm not talking about like the 1940s or 19, you know, 50s, like today in, you know, 2022. They don't like it when people move and don't come back. That is a, you know, and and that isolationism, that provincialism runs deep in pockets of the United States. Um, and not only does it run deep in some of those communities, it's a badge of honor. And I don't know, you know, I don't know in having how you have a national conversation with that. I mean, the idea was that Congress was supposed to be the place where we could have those national conversations because the folks who want to be isolationists can half are forced to exist at the same space with the folks who are represented by the AOCs of the world, right? Like, but to your earlier point, because the mechanisms within Congress have completely broken down, because it is pro forma at this point, 
None of that's happening. And the media certainly has abdicated its role here, too. You know, some of that, I think, has to do with media consolidation in this country generally. It is horrible to me that we don't have state house reporters standard in every newspaper across the country in every town, but we don't. Broadcast media on the whole in terms of nightly news is a joke, Mm. you know, through Sinclair Media. I just, you know, so there is a lack of real good, consistent political media for folks to be able to consume, to stay knowledgeable, in addition to a certain part of the population that's just dug in and proud of remaining ignorant. And that is why independent journalists, like ourselves, have have felt compelled to make programs where we do have national conversations. Exactly. And, and, and the best conversations are going on on YouTube. They're not going <laughs> on, on, on on mainstream media. No. And, and as you say, cable news is unwatchable. And it, it's, it's very sad to me because, you know, I, I came up with the, the, the concept of creating five-minute news, just a daily factual news yeah. podcast, because when I moved to America, despite having 117,000 channels, there was no news. No and, and, and and that's the tragedy. There are some great journalists here. There are some people doing some amazing work. And yet, as you say, the way that the media operates, because the dollar is king and it's all about the ratings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even the Ukraine war, I see them using that to, to benefit yeah. themselves with ratings. Of course, Trump was a Trump was a freak show. And so they chose to ignore the fact that he was mentally ill mm-hmm. and they took advantage of his mental illness to, to sell advertising. No, no one's even had that conversation out loud. Anybody that talks about that in any, you know, we're supposed to, the stigma associated with mental illness is supposed to have, you know, the curtain is supposed to have fallen, the veil has, has come off. And yet we had a man who is and continues to be so publicly mentally ill and nobody talks about that anywhere. You know, there's one very good documentary called um, Unfit, The Psychology mm. of Donald Trump, where all of these clinicians basically diagnosed him. The argument to say, oh, well, how can you diagnose him? You haven't met him. The guy's the most filmed person in the world, you know, like he's you don't need to sit mm-hmm. with him in a room to see how ill this guy is. And yet the media covered him as if what he was saying was gospel mm-hmm. instead of just going, whoa, we can't repeat this. Yeah. So. Do we get what we deserve? Is, is, is that what's happened? You know, is, <sighs> is, is, it's hard for me to say because I'm an immigrant, you know, and I don't want to criticize America. I chose to live here. I, I love it here. But do we get what we deserve? I mean, I'm even seeing this in, in the media reports now in relation to the, you know, seven hours of missing tape from January 6th. Right. CNN is out there saying, well, according to the White House, the logs are fine. As though we should be taking their word at face value on anything. At yeah, the story point. the story changed midweek, didn't it? It was it was suddenly yeah. a story where 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 everything was missing, and then it, oh no, it's like that every day. He yeah. he always in the middle of the day he always goes off and you know he's he's on cell phones or you know, which 
if if true, is also a huge, massive story that the media right. should not it's, be dropping yeah, the ball on. It's not journal. It's not journalism. Whatever they're doing, it's not journalism. So this is why I find myself in sort of a constant state of disbelief around um, the sort of me- the political conversations in the media right now, because seeing that get reported by folks who ostensibly should know better, right? Who have arguably a lot of experience as political um, journalists, just taking it face value. Um, I do think that there is, uh, you know, there is an appetite for the horse race um, in political media and Trump, particularly DeSantis, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boeber, all of these fringe figures among the right make for great political media for them. They're not thinking about the consequences of uh, and the ethics You know, I mean, I do think that there's a journalism ethics conversation that is missing too. what happens when we no longer hold ourselves as the folks who are supposed to be speaking truth to power. That is an abdication of our ethical duty as journalists. Well, this is what deregulation gets you, you know, whether whether it be Trump uh, deregulating the Environmental Protection Agency. Yep. You know, it, it, it puts scars into the water and people are unable to to have you know their basic human rights are undermined and it's the same as as reagan uh removing the fairness doctrine and, oh yeah and, oh and, i will and, go on about that for hours right right and so and so and and the thing about the fairness doctrine is that an entire generation of people have grown up now in this country mm-hmm. in fact multiple generations now mm-hmm. never knowing balanced news reporting right because that was abolished in what 80 83 or 87 something like that and so there is no and when i announced that i was going to be doing an unbiased news service people were like well that's impossible how you're going to have a bias i'm like no you have a bias the bias is in you mm-hmm. my reporting is truthful but the bias actually comes from the audience yeah. but when the broadcaster is is presenting the bias then that becomes propaganda and that's you know and that's fundamentally the problem um can we talk about joe biden just for a second announcing plans to release up to a million barrels of oil a day from the strategic reserve this is in an attempt to contain high gasoline prices and curb inflation exacerbated by the war in ukraine um and you know and he's and obviously gas prices for anybody are 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 impossible especially if you're on low income and america being america without mass transit in many places people have to drive so you know it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy but we're at a bit of a crossroads here aren't we because we also have a climate crisis yeah and the climate crisis is not a joke. I mean, it's a real thing. You know, the, the, the temperature here in California, Ventura County, it's risen by 3.7 degrees above pre-industrial yeah. levels. I mean, it's, it's just like you won't be able to live there, you know. And so how do we, how do we qualify the fact that he's now telling the, the industry, the oil industry, to drill more? And and that the only way to get out of this, to reduce gas prices, he says he doesn't even know how much they'll go down by. They might go down by 10 or 25 or 35 cents, mm-hmm. mobilizing the industry to drill more. I mean, that's again, my hair is gone. I've pulled it all out. I mean, what, how, and he's a he's a Democrat. He's a progressive, supposedly. I mean, 
What's happening here, Jessica? Help me, please. I wish I could. It makes no sense. It makes no policy sense. It makes no short-term sense. It sounds like the kind of answer that you give when you don't have an answer, right? right. Like this is what that this is what American leaders do in times of crisis. We release oil reserves. We, you know, I mean like there it feels like you're checking boxes off of a 1980s, 1990s, like, you know, strategy document about how to respond to a global crisis yeah. and 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 keep folks at bay here. I mean, yes, gas prices are expensive by American standards, you know, um, gas prices are not expensive by, uh, you know, a by standards across the globe. This needs to be part of the larger conversation about energy policy. You know, I, I'm here in Colorado. We, ha, you know, in my community, we had a wildfire here in 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 December that burned a thousand homes. Literally, I'm less than two miles from the burn zone. This is unheard of in my state, but now this is normal. So we cannot, every crisis has a climate component to it. Gas prices have been too cheap in America for too long, though, haven't they? Forever. That's that's the problem. You know, people are used to paying two bucks or two and a half bucks, and they're like, well, that's how much it should be. And it's like no one anywhere in the rest of the world pays anywhere. Leave the United States and go anywhere else, and you will see that four, five, six, seven dollars a gallon is normal. And this is, you know, goes back to wages not rising with yep. inflation, so people can't afford it. So, of course, they get angry and then they don't yep. want to be told to wear a mask. So they're doubly angry that week. And so there's, you know, this is a kind of build up of a yes. hatred of government. Blame the yes. government. And the right wing media is saying that Biden is lying, that Ukraine is responsible for the high gas prices now because without realizing that the oil is a commodity. And, right. it, and it, it, it rises and it falls with, 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 with the world. As the world changes, so does the price of oil. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, electric vehicles have been around for 12 years, really. The first mass-produced electric car uh-huh. was the Nissan Leaf in 2010. Uh, so, you know, people could have gone electric. The hybrid vehicle has been around for 25 years. Um, what is there? Why has there been this reluctance to switch? You know, the, I mean, I live in California. The sun shines all the time, and maybe what, like five percent of the houses have got solar panels on the roofs. I mean, what is this uh, reluctance to embrace the fact that the planet is burning, and yet we have these natural resources all around us, and yet people don't want to take advantage of them? Where, where does that come from? Um. So this is I love this because you're like asking me all about the American psyche functionally. I do think that there is I mean, the myth of American individualism is this right, like that we don't need the government to do things for us. And then also conservatives take that and are off to the races for it because they also actually don't like government. So they campaign on breaking it. Right. They campaign on if you put me in office, I will make it even harder for the government to do the things that it is supposed to do to make your life easier. And Americans buy this hook, line and sinker routinely, generation after generation after generation. I don't understand it at all. Um, But I do think that there is that sense. And this is, you know, conservatives winning the messaging war. Why haven't, you know, things like electric vehicles and hybrids taken off in this country? 
Well, because only, you know, liberals, and there's a lot of like slur associated around that, would drive those, right? True Americans don't drive cars like that. And there's a lot of baggage around who a true American would be in that context. And so wh- that's a white American, what you're it's describing. It's a white American. a white American, yeah. Yeah, who is, you know, likely living a more suburban existence as opposed to an urban existence, right? You need to be decentralizing population. You can't have urban density, right? Um, that goes against all of that as well. Um, so this country's a mess. <laughs> I didn't say that. You said that. I, I said I, that. I, I, I chose to live here. I just want to make that absolutely clear that you said that. Not me. <laughs> Soon it's going to be the case, if what, if what you're saying is true, that the Democrats will be the ones adopting electric vehicles, which don't make a noise. It means that you're going to be able to hear Republicans coming over the hill in their combustion yeah. engine vehicles. Yes. In the same way that after a time, the only people wearing masks were Democrats and Republicans were refusing to. It'll be the same with the adoption of electric vehicles that, that, that fundamentally and, and solar panels on the roof that yep. fundamentally. But the thing is that it doesn't make sense is that it's cheaper. You know, you have an electric car, it's cheaper. Yeah. You don't have to fix it because it doesn't have an engine or oil or, or, or a transmission. There's nothing to go wrong. It's cheaper, and and conservatives like to conserve their money. They certainly don't. They certainly don't like to, you know, pay pay tax. So why why is it, it almost seems like conservatives are, are voting for the wrong team? You know, is, is mm. this is this the case? I mean, re- Republicans have been able to stay in power largely by having large swaths of white Americans vote against their own economic interests for generations in this country. I mean, there is no reason why all of those voters that the Washington Post, that the New York Times, that, you know, CNN, all of those Trump diner voters, there is no reason any of those folks, if they were actually voting with their pocketbooks, would ever vote for Republicans, would ever vote for conservative policy. They're always dinging them at kitchen table issues that we like to talk about. Um, But because they're consistently, especially in media spaces, running on identity issues and and wielding that, weaponizing that, right? There's a segment of white America that is that is experiencing, you know, a societal downward um, mobility. And that is not the fault of immigrants. That is not the fault of people of color who are in working class jobs. That is the fault of conservative policy, economic policy in this country. Democrats also don't say that. And I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, this this fundamental issue of of the, the dispossessed white working class people voting conservative is fascinating because it's the same mm. in England where I'm from. You know, yeah. uh, Boris Johnson has this huge following and yet he cares nothing for these people. No. These are not the people that he would naturally socialize with. And it was the same with Trump. Trump's mm-hmm. people are like Jeffrey Epstein, you know, like w- yeah. wealth, wealthy sex offenders, you know, n- not not hardworking people. And so and as we know, you know, Trump has stiffed anybody that that has worked yeah, for him. He doesn't pay his bills. And the latest one is the photographer, a female photographer, White House photographer, who took pictures throughout his presidency. And he's now published like a coffee table book 
and he hasn't credited her. <laughs> used all her pictures, and he's and he's like ignoring. Very I mean, it's on just brand. Like, yeah, it's very on brand. Uh, listen, we have to finish, but I'm very pleased to talk to you, and I'm very grateful for your for your thoughts and your expertise. And you know, just like journalist to journalist, you know, it does fill me with hope to know that there are people that are really thinking about the the bigger picture issues because you know we sometimes get caught in the weeds of a of mm -hmm. a story or of a of a subject but fundamentally i always believe that these these bigger picture conversations about america and where we want it to head how we want it to evolve are just as important absolutely thank you this was a delight thank you for asking me to join you i would talk about america and what a mess we are <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully one day we'll have a conversation that yes. is the, the, the polar opposite to that. And we'll, yes. we'll celebrate. The, trending, the, the, in the, uh, trending in a better direction, hopefully. That's right. Once we've made America great again, we'll be yes. able to celebrate it. Okay. Exactly. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much. Thank I, you so I, much. I, it was I, a delight. Really appreciate it. My thanks to Jessica Peeklow. Don't forget, you can subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen to it whilst you make your morning coffee. And please leave an iTunes review, but only if you like the show. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.